0: Hello, everyone. Um, this might just be the biggest episode we've had on our podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Yasser Bashir. Um, he's the CEO and founder of Arbisoft. It's, which is, you know, if you're in Pakistan, you know it, and if you're not, then it's a leading software development company with a global footprint. Yasser is a computer science graduate from Lums and then Stanford University. And he has an impressive career in software engineering and leadership roles at companies like OrthoClear and Align. Um, but in 2007, he went with true Calling and he founded Arbisoft, which, is, which now employs hundreds of people across Pakistan, Australia, Texas, Malaysia, has been serving as a backbone development partner for many organizations, including Kayak, MIT, edX, Insurify. Um, and Yasser also is an active angel investor. Um, and deeply committed to the growth of the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Pakistan. Um, and today, it's a pleasure for me to discuss within everything related to entrepreneurship, building in Pakistan, Arbisoft's expansion plans, and um, you know, hopefully also certain policy changes that are important for us to become the next big thing, as many have claimed Pakistan to be. So welcome to the podcast, Yasser. It's a pleasure to have you on board.
1: Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, Really glad to be here and um, grateful that you considered me for this episode.
0: Right. Thank you so much. Um, So I'm not going to waste any time. I know you're on a strict um, calendar. So we'll start with kind of just going through your journey as an entrepreneur and, you know, how and why you started
1: Arbisoft. Um, So I think mostly it was accidental. I usually quote three reasons why I ended up becoming an entrepreneur, uh, if you will. I think the first one was that um, I was in jobs for the first ten years of my career and mostly in engineering jobs and as an engineer, I tried to do as best as I could right I mean I always tried to be a good employee a good engineer so I think that is an important aspect of it uh, those companies were very entrepreneurial so they were you know building really cutting edge products so that gave me a sense of you know what product development or entrepreneurial business development uh, is all about. So that's the second reason. And um, I think the third and possibly the most important reason is that some of those companies kept shutting down and I was in between (laughs) jobs. So I ended up, uh, you know, basically uh, deciding to start a, a business of my own. If those jobs had continued, I was pretty happy. I was making a difference. I was doing high quality engineering. I probably would have continued those but because you know for one reason or another those companies shut down um I decided that I should give it a, a shot myself starting a business a shot myself so one of the things that I see in people uh, sometimes is that they only have one reason which is that I'm in between jobs so you know let me start a company uh, in my case they were definitely more than Uh, you know, there was definitely more than one reason.
0: And when you thought about it, did you, like, was creating a software development company the first thing in your mind? Or did you think about maybe, you know, starting a product company and you stumbled on different ideas and then finally kind of, you know, um, rested with this software development company idea?
1: That's a good question. We started building a productified service company. Um, The reason for doing that was that, You know, in those days, this is, I'm talking about 2007. Uh, In those days, funding was not easy to come by. Uh, Like, unless you were playing in the international market, Pakistan uh, was not known uh, for a destination for entrepreneurship or product development. Uh, They were still early days. So we decided to start a productized service uh, because it's easier to bootstrap uh, those kinds of companies. You don't need a lot of funding. And the very first company that I started, it was a company called Deep Pixels. And the idea was that uh, the productized service that we had was just post-processing of uh, medical images coming out of CT and MRI machines. So it's a skill which requires some training. So it's not like you you can have competitors, uh, there's still some barrier to entry. Um, So if you're successful, Other people can't just get up and start offering the same productized service because, you know, there is a training requirement Uh, in the U.S. This job is called an X-ray technician. So we essentially learned what X-ray technicians do, trained our own people here. And then we started uh, selling that service um, to labs, imaging labs in the U.S. So That was the very first, uh, you know, company that we started. Um, And then it slowly kind of automatically evolved into becoming ArbySoft because to build the platform that would allow us to you know sell that productized service, uh, we, I had some of the engineers who would work with me at previous companies come along with me and they built the initial platform. Very slowly we started realizing that it was a good business to be in, but it was not a very scalable business. So it would probably not go to like thousands of people. Um, so it would probably, you know, just, uh, plateau at a few tens of people. So then those engineers, uh, w- because they had come along with me for deep pixels and they had time on their hands. We, we thought maybe, you know, we should start using their time to do software services as well, because software services is what I had done all my life, uh, before starting deep pixels or software building is what, uh, what I had done. So I said, you know, we've always built software for the broader companies that we worked for. Uh, Let's build software for other product companies now. So that was the kind of the genesis of Arbisoft. And um, we started doing some software projects for other clients. And some of them uh, luckily became big enough that eventually uh, DeepPixels first became kind of like the secondary business that we had. And then slowly we kind of backed it up because we felt that you know all of our attention was needed on the software side of the business.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that um, very exciting journey that you, endured that you kind of went through um, to finally create this uh, extremely impactful company in Pakistan. Uh, and I want to I also want to understand how has entrepreneurship and the technology landscape you kind of touched upon us briefly, but how has it changed from 2005, um, or sorry, 2007, when you first started your company to now, um, what has like, you know, because you're one of the few people that has have, you know, that has access or, you know, can give us that perspective or peripheral vision from that time
1: to this. Um, and you know, how has that changed? How has it evolved? Good question. I think, uh, the primary way in which it has changed is that at that time in 2007, one, funding sources were not widely available, right? So it was not easy to raise funding. Uh, It was almost impossible to raise funding from Pakistan and generally not easy to raise funding from outside of Pakistan as well. So that I think is one significant way in which it has changed. Now there are funding sources available, both within Pakistan and outside. There's angel networks, there's, you know, VC companies. uh, And obviously a lot of external funding has come into Pakistan in the last couple of years, with the exception of the last few months. So I think that is significant. But more importantly, at that time, I don't think uh, Pakistani investors and investors from outside Pakistan were also looking at Pakistan as a potential market for which solutions can be built, right? Uh, they were not thinking of, okay, let's build products that solve problems for people in Pakistan. I don't think that was a very prevalent thought. I think that thought became prevalent only after seeing the success of the same model in Indonesia and the... 2012, 13 timeframe, and obviously India has also had some success in the last decade or so, uh, purely building products. Obviously, don't forget that India had a huge success story when it came to technology or software services, and uh, all the Wipros and the Tatas and the emphasis of the world were around, um, you know, in that first decade of the century as well. But I think the product success in India happened in the next decade. In Indonesia, you know several unicorns were formed in the next decade. And because at least on paper, our, our demographics look similar to Indonesias, I think 2012-13 uh, uh, is a time frame when people started looking at Pakistan as a potential market opportunity as well, uh, not just, uh, you know, a place from where they could get talent or outsource services. So I think those are the big differences. uh, From those early days, Uh, technology was not as prevalent either. Internet penetration, mobile phone penetration, all of those things had started to happen. But I think they um, happened in a big way a few years later. That's
0: very interesting. And I, um, and, and we'll touch upon some of the more, um, important factors of how you raised funding for a startup in Pakistan, given that, you know, you're also an angel investor and you've helped companies raise, uh, money. Uh, there was this very interesting thread I was looking in on Twitter the other day, and it was by actually one of the Pakistani founders and they compared the interest in private equity in the 2007, 2008 time period in Pakistan, where very very big investment banks were thinking about setting up shop and i think one of them did either i don't know whether it was Merrill lynch or it was goldman sachs and um you know because at that point in time there was the pakistan had relatively good growth numbers and it was a market where people thought you know there there could be significant returns similar to how you would you were seeing other asian economies like you mentioned indonesia and india also kind of you know showcasing that there was promise for greater returns. However, after the entire 2008 financial crisis, what we saw was that that interest not only died away, but it kind of never came back. And what he was trying, what the entrepreneur was trying to compare was the interest in 2022 and 2021, the kind of interest that we had, the kind of eyeballs that we were attracting from, not just small players um, in the venture world, but you know, Companies like Kleiner Perkins and others were, or I'm hoping still, were looking at Pakistan to be a major player um, in the venture ecosystem. And what they were comparing was that you know that was a lucky break for us then, um, because we didn't have good fundamentals. And as soon as the financial crisis came and money was no longer easily accessible, when and then there was a revision of okay, where is, is our money going to give us return? And we saw that Pakistan wasn't a potential market. They were comparing the same thing in 2022 and 2021, where there was a lot of access to VCs for money, a lot of money. um, And they thought Pakistan could be one of those big players similar to India and Indonesia. But now that that interest has died away, we might never see that momentum return. What What are your thoughts
1: on that? I think some of it has to do with the you know looming global recession. Obviously, the entire world's economy has kind of gone into a tailspin since the Ukraine-Russia war. And that has obviously played a huge part in it. Uh, to your earlier point, back in the first decade, decade of the century, there was a lot of interest, especially early on, uh, for foreign companies. I don't remember Merrill Lynch or Goldman ever thinking of coming to Pakistan, but I do remember that ABN AMRO uh, had set up like a software development house, uh, which now seems, um, you know, really strange, but I think it was called Avian Amro Global IT Systems. And they had a significantly large team uh, in Pakistan until I think 2006, 2007. In the first decade of the century, um, I feel like, you know, nine eleven really damaged us. So my first company shut down in Pakistan because of 9-11 it was an amazing company. I think a is now easily like a 30 billion, 40 billion dollar company with a Pakistani founder and all of the operations were in Pakistan. So 9-11 happened and they decided that Pakistan was too risky. So that I think 9-11 again was one event that affected the rest of the world. But uh, in Pakistan was one of the first hit countries because of that. And um, many things that were going to happen didn't happen. Uh, because of nine eleven, coming back to your other question, I think uh, you are absolutely right. A lot of the investors started looking at Pakistan because they were having FOMO, uh, and they were thinking that you know Pakistan is an Indonesia like story, so we should look at it. Um, in fact, I have a an example of that. We built tech for Sasta Ticket, which is Pakistan's kayak, if you will, or you know the major a major booking platform. I remember I was. Uh, talking to, you know, the Gobi Ventures investor who was in Pakistan looking to invest in Sesta Ticket. And in that conversation, I vividly remember, he said, you know, we had this opportunity to invest in Travaloka in Indonesia, which by that time had become like a multi-unicorn, right? It was like a $3, 4000000000 billion company. And he said, we just totally missed out, right? We didn't think it could be so big, but look at where Traveloka is today. So we are not, we are going to make sure that in a similar emerging market, we don't miss a similar opportunity. There was a lot of foMO about Pakistan. Um, but one of the articles that I've been quoting to people that I recently read, uh, this gentleman on he tweets, um, I think his name is Ozair Ali, and he wrote an article which uh, really struck a chord with me, and he was talking about how uh, you know we kind of misjudged that the Pakistan of 18, nineteen looked similar to Indonesia of twelve thirteen. He said in his analysis, and he co- quoted a lot of like interesting numbers. Um, the Pakistan of eighteen nineteen is more like uh, the Indonesia of two thousand four two thousand five in terms of you know GDP growth and you know other indicators. So he was saying even the middle class um, you know growth and opportunity. So he was saying that we may still be a few years um, ahead of the inflection point that happened for Indonesia in twelve thirteen. And I think I kind of mostly agree with his analysis. Some parts I don't agree with. And that is another realization that, you know, investors may be having uh, now. So just to give you an example, I think uh, typically when startups fish to investors, they talk about the Pakistani growing middle class. They talk about the 120 million, let's say, broadband connections or 100 million broadband connections. And they say that the, you know, middle class is around 80 million projected to be Um, around 120 million by the year 2025. And on paper, all of that sounds pretty exciting. But the fact remains that the the way that, you know, calculation has been done, the way we, you know, decide who is in middle class and who is not, is a very loose calculation. So I think it's some crazy number like, you know, any household with um, monthly income of Three to four hundred dollars. I don't remember the exact number, but when you look at the number, you'd you'd be able to see that even though we've qualified that household as middle class, uh, with a four hundred dollar income per month for the entire household, there's really not a lot that you can afford in terms of digital goods or services. So, I think um, the market has been somewhat overprojected, and now that adjustment has been happening as well which is not to say that we are not a big market. We are, you know, one of the biggest emerging markets in the world. It's just that all of the calculations and projections um, have been done on numbers that need to be revisited, right? So in the last few years, both in terms of political stability and economic stability have not helped. So all of those factors combined, the global recession, the war, the fact that we haven't done so well politically or economically in the last uh, few years, and the fact that our previous projections were based on um, stats or analytics that may need a revision, I think have kind of led to the slowdown of investments in Pakistan. But just by virtue of being a very large market, 220 million people, um, it's only a matter of time. So our timing may be off, but I still look at Pakistan as a uh, as a place rife with opportunity, uh, for disruption, for creating products and services, uh, and pretty much every sector, whether it's public or private is underserved, uh, in terms of the convenience, in terms of the, you know, where the rest of the world is. So the opportunity is huge. Um, and the real monetization opportunity may still be a few years away, but it's hundred percent likely to happen. Right. There's no doubt that it will happen at some point.
0: Funny point. Uh, my first job was at Sastatik right after graduating, I was working at Sastatik. That was my first job. Um, and Mm -hmm. I plan to also get Mm -hmm. Shazil on this podcast very soon. Uh, and I completely agree with you. I think a lot of what had happened was that this, I think for Pakistan, even with all the estimations that you felt that you just talked about inflated expectations, i agree with that analysis and i think that if we look at our own stat like if we look at our own situation i think there is a lot of governance problem right um, and i want to touch upon that mm-hmm. for a minute because we can't and governance is related to politics and neither of us are an expert in politics and I'm, i i don't know about you but i don't want to kind of get any political commentary but what we can do is that we can drop parallels about governance in other economies like india and indonesia And the kind of support that they received um, to be able, and the kind of, not just the support, right? There was this identification that in order to make ourselves an economy that kind of creates value and then exports it in a fast-tracked way without being able to set up the same fundamentals that, let's say, economies in Europe and America have been doing, um, venture is is, you know, is like a magic potion for that. And I just feel like that has not really quite settled in when it comes to governance in Pakistan. So what are your thoughts on that? And what kind of steps or policy changes can we start about thinking that can, you know, at least help us actualize that Pakistani startup dream in the next five to ten years?
1: I think you're absolutely right. Governance obviously plays a huge role in this. Um, But to my earlier comment, that governance... Even the problem that needs to be solved, even before that governance problem can be solved, is the, you know, the political turmoil that we've been going through for the last many years. I'll tell you, I mean, so I was talking to Muivy Yusuf, uh, who's an amazing uh, person, and he was the national security advisor in the last government, and he, you know, played a you know really crucial role in in creating the national security policy, and he said that in the national security policy, it is very, very clear that the biggest threat to Pakistan's national security is, A, economics, but more specifically, the disparity, the economic disparity between, you know, urban centers and rural centers, for example, the difference between KLI, Karachi Lahore, Islamabad, and the rest of the country. And he said, if you talk to politicians, um, they'd all agree behind closed doors that that's the you know, biggest threat to security. But uh, when you actually talk to them in front of the camera, they would not, they rather, they dare not say that, you know, the biggest security threat is not the Kashmir issue or, you know, other issues that have been around for a long time. So because they want to do political point scoring by bringing up issues which may not be, you know, the real issues. So unless people, politicians in Pakistan agree on what the real issues of Pakistan are, any policy making, uh, like the national security policy, would just be um, essentially a formality and uh, no one would actually work on it. So I think the best thing that can happen for Pakistan, even before solid policy making, is political stability, some national consensus on what our real issues are. Behind closed doors, that consensus exists. I think one of the positives that I see coming out of all of the political instability in the last couple of years is that I think now even openly many people, including the army, including the bureaucracy, including the politicians have started saying that we need to be a globally competitive, export oriented, productivity oriented country. And, uh, you know, that's what is going to determine our national security as well. So I think that's been a positive change. We just need to build a political consensus around it as in politicians need to do that. And then any policies that, um, our made can have some longevity. Otherwise, uh, if you don't have consensus on, you know, yes, we all agree that this is the top priority. You build a policy, but the next government would just almost uh, make it irrelevant. Um, So the political issue needs to be solved first. Now that does not absolve us, us as in entrepreneurs and um, business people and students and, you know, employees of companies. It does not absolve us of our responsibility. And the example that I always use is that, you know, if you go to there are institutions in Pakistan, there are centers of excellence. So if you go to Alums, Lums, uh, obviously, you and I both have that Lums connection. The Lums entity, the Lums brand can stand on its own legs despite being in Pakistan anywhere in the world. You can, you know, just compare Alums to any top institution in the world. and yeah, it won't be able to beat like the top 100, but it would come very close, right? I mean, there's a degree of excellence there. So that's what I think uh, is incumbent upon us, that all of us need to be thinking about making ourselves uh, in those little pockets globally competitive um, and uh, achieving that level of excellence despite the challenges that we have. That's what entrepreneurs have, right? I mean, they see all the challenges and they still figure out how to pursue excellence. So I think that's what we can do at the private sector. I mean, there's very little. I've been part of meetings where they're discussing policy and the, you know, the direction is very clear, but nothing ever happens. So almost as a rule of thumb, I've kind of stopped going to, you know, okay, come and tell us what should we do? Because, you know, our telling you is not enough. You actually have to make it happen as well. And that won't happen unless there's political stability.
0: I don't want to make this podcast too much about politics, but I do want to kind of maybe, you know, dig deeper there. And I, I and I agree with Moi's analysis on a lot of things. I was recently li- listening to his; um, it, it was a podcast or it was some some video, and he talked about that we had become so accustomed to become to being a security state that we were we always thought that there will be money pouring in for you know fighting someone else's war, and that money could sustain a certain mm-hmm. lifestyle for a certain elite. And because that continuity was there, um, you know, we kind of thought that that would never end. Um, And in between all of that, we never realized that we had become so unimportant in the global scheme of things with China and India. And like, you know, even to an extent, I like, you know, America says that for it the next big challenge is not Russia. Right. It's not our it's not it's not, for example, it's not Russia. It's it's not the Cold War happening again. It's it's China. Right. Um, And the war and it's it's about the chip war and it's about the race to AI, uh, the AI supremacy. And so I feel like we kind of completely skipped or missed the part, even the ruling class of this country, just completely, you know, I don't know whether it was oblivious to it or not, uh, but kind of completely miscalculated our own importance and, you know, our own geopolitical importance. And I get all of that, but I do want to understand that when I listen to these issues, I feel very helpless because I feel like that then again means that I have to handle these things. To someone, to someone else's hand, right? Like, I feel like that kind of governance or political stability still rests in the hands of the few. And until there is this power, like, for example, there is this dilution of power and, you know, more local bodies become empowered. And that's a long process. And, you know, let's call hope that help that, that happens a lot. But when I look at entrepreneurship, I just feel like, or when I think about, you know, technology, And now AI, I think about that these are these equalizers that we have that, you know, that people that have allowed people like myself to be able to maybe contribute positively. And I want to understand from your perspective, what can entrepreneurship do for, for, you know, making the Pakistani case? I understand political stability might not be here for the next five years, but what can, you know, what can we do? What can Pakistani entrepreneurs do? And then like maybe in that same um, kind of, you know, I know that's a very loaded question. So I'll just also kind of also want to add a qualifier here is that I also feel sometimes Pakistani startups, because again, they are, and I think Farooq did a great article on this because the founders of Pakistani startups are usually either from Lums or either from, you know, universities from abroad, they have this, like, for example, there's this maybe not a very deep understanding of the market or the local psyche, right? And we at times try to mimic so much of, you know, the companies that are in like, you know, in North America or the startup ecosystem that are in, that is in North America or even in India, that we fail to realize that I think it has to be something different, it has to be more Pakistani. it has to be more like, for example, it's, it's our DNA is, you know, even though we're very similar culturally to India and, you know, maybe the ecosystem, but there, there, there are problems and opportunities that are very different. So would like to get your thoughts on that too.
1: I think you're right. That is a problem where, you know, you basically do not identify with, you know, what who your end, end customer is and, uh, you know, build solutions that you've seen work elsewhere and in the hope that they'll work here as well. That has been a problem. I don't think that's a, that's the biggest problem. I think the biggest problem is still that, you know, it's there's just not a lot of money that the Pakistani economy has to be spent. So the case that I want entrepreneurs to make is that while there's not a lot of money, um, it's still a huge market, and you can really very um, cost-effectively learn what works and what doesn't work. Uh, you can, there's, a, there's a large, unsaturated market that is available, and uh, you can essentially um, learn very easily uh, what works for users and, or not. But then think about making whatever that product or service is uh, globally competitive so think about okay if i have i you know taken my product or service to a level where if i take it to a you know globally competitive kind of audience then it will still be able to stand on its own legs and that's a point that i think again atif mia has been making a lot in his podcast that you know are we locally productive or are we globally productive that is an important question So my message has been consistent to entrepreneurs for the last few years that if you're just relying on the fact that the Pakistani market is an untapped, unsaturated market, but your solution is otherwise not optimal for a market with a little bit more competition, then make it so. Work on making it more competitive. Um, To your earlier point, i think a lot of very successful very smart people have come and built solutions in pakistan but again they hit the bottleneck that uh, we are a very discount based economy and we value those products and services and those products and services work well for us we just don't have money to pay for them and uh, that is a realization that i see a lot of entrepreneurs smart entrepreneurs have uh, you know uh, them having i mean I, I've been quoting this example. I think recently Kareem decided that they're not going to operate in cities other than KLI. I think it was Kareem or Uber, one of the, the, the two, right? And you have to ask yourself why. I mean, KL, the KL, KLI is a very large segment of our population, but a, a much larger segment of the population resides in those other smaller cities. But why not? I think primarily because they feel like Um, people don't have the capability to pay for the, for the service uh, in those areas. So that that's, that's a big problem. And I think their policy can come again, like, you know, policymakers can make sure that they incentivize being, they somehow create incentives for these product companies to be in areas where people may not have deep pockets, but they are still viable markets. And these services is what is going to allow them to, you know, become more prosperous. So, yeah, that's what my perspective is. What Your question was, what should entrepreneurs do? I, I say now build products that you can take to other markets also successfully. Yeah. Because you might find that, you know, monetization in Pakistan will remain hard for the next few years. It will eventually come. So if you have uh, connections with deep funding, uh, you have uh, follow-on funding you can sustain yourself for the next few years just with funding it's totally fine continue focusing on Fa- pakistan continue building but if monetization is going to become a bottleneck uh, then i think you might want to take your product idea elsewhere also i mean we have uh, the example of food panda right i mean they are planning to be cash flow positive in uh, 25 or something hugely successful business right uh, a lot of people use it at, like Hundreds of uh, thousands of deliveries now uh, per day, uh, but still cash flow positivity is a few years away.
0: And what do you think about, like, for example, one of our and in that same chain of thought, when you when you are talking about entrepreneurs and building products not just for Pakistan but for other markets that you know you, you could use Pakistan as this kind of launch pad. I know Airlift had similar ideas. With Africa is one of those markets where grocery deliveries could be tapped into through Pakistan using Pakistan as a launch pad. However, I do feel like, for example, I feel like people who even want to make a difference and a lot of my friends, right, uh, who want to maybe start a company and are working in, you know, companies uh, abroad, right? That's one of the most fundamental problems yeah. this, con- this, um, this country has. So I'm, I'm on two sides of the coin. I don't understand whether we should be exporting our people and let them go abroad and then, you know, maybe have the money come in and look at it as a source. And I've seen people make a case for that and how that's good. But at the same time, I also feel like the more brain drain there is like, for example, the less there is an incentive for people that are working abroad to come back here and build good stuff, like build impactful stuff. Like you are an example, but you are the exception, right? Um, and, uh, and so where do you stand on that on the, on that spectrum?
1: I think, um, I'm actually standing somewhere in the middle on that spectrum because I feel like both are good things, right? I mean, part of the reason that I was able to kind of build a business somewhat successfully was my exposure to the, you know, to how things happen uh, in places like the U.S., right? I mean, I worked for a company that had presence there and gave me an opportunity to interact with people there, so on and so forth. So that is super helpful. Uh, So I'm not discounting the value of that. And I also think that most of these people do have an ambition that they want to come back and create a difference um, in Pakistan at some point. So both have their merits and demerits. I think, um, luckily, we have so many people that we can afford to have both. Right? We can have some people yeah. just leave Pakistan, do good work, send money back home, and other people just you know decide to come back and uh, create a difference, make a difference here. So there's room for both. I don't. I don't necessarily look at one way negatively versus the other. But the important thing is that, you know, uh, even if you're going abroad to do a job, go with the mission to make yourself globally competitive and, um, you know, basically raise your competence level, your skill levels at par with, you know, the rest of the world. Then you'll increase your likelihood of success, even if you're coming back. But if you're just coming back, because, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm globally competitive. So let me go build a business in Pakistan. I don't know if that will succeed. Um, You know, the world is becoming, is shrinking very fast, becoming flat really fast. So now, you know, the best talent, uh, you know, the entire world is their oyster, if you will. Um, It doesn't matter where they're sitting anyway. So you have to become, start becoming globally competitive. This is a, this is the thing that you know people are rallying around now. That you know our productivity needs to match the rest of the world, as individuals, as teams, as companies, as a country. Um, you know, I, I like that mantra. I think this is a mission that we can you know, all, we should all get behind.
0: No, no, I completely agree. Uh, and uh, th- that's an answer that satisfies me a lot as well. Um, so coming back to Arbisoft and I want to understand like tying in what the future of entrepreneurship looks like in Pakistan, how do you see Arbisoft playing a role in shaping that future?
1: I think uh, we see ourselves playing a very, very strong role. And um, we obviously have traditionally been a software services company, but we've had uh, quite a lot of success in building products uh, over the last few years that we hope to continue replicating and expanding Uh, over the next few years as well. And part of the reason, again, that we are able to create that success is that uh, by luck, we ended up doing, you know, providing services to some of the leading product companies in the world. Like they were market leaders in their verticals. You've named a few in your intro. And the biggest advantage of working with those companies is you kind of start learning what cutting edge uh, market leading product development looks like and you can bring some of those lessons back home. So we've been consistently building those products, exiting some products. Again, I was just, uh, we had a product hackathon yesterday um, at Arvisoft. We now do the, at least one, if not two hackathons per year to kind of select the best ideas to build. And I was telling them, you know, uh, you know my story of the Arvisoft product journey, what products we built. We built maybe 11 or 12 in the last 16 years at least three or four can be considered successful, not huge successes, but successful enough that, you know, to continue to engage us uh, and to continue to have us continue building products. Um, And then there were some failures. So we know, you know, what patterns work, what don't work. Uh, One pattern that worked for us is that many of our successful products were built in partnership with people in other markets, um, where we, we were significant, if not majority stakeholders, Um, but, you know, those partners brought a lot of value. Um, So, you know, that's one theme. Another theme is that, you know, for some of the products that we are building for the local market, we've been focusing a lot on unit unit economics from the get-go. So, you want to make sure that, you know, we're not just telling the growth story, we're also telling the unit economics story. So, Arbisoft will continue to play its role. We are in a uniquely advantageous position to do that. One I already said by virtue of us having built products for the best companies in the world. And two, now that we are a large company, we have very solid engineering uh, capability. One of the reasons I see startups failing in Pakistan is that their engineering and product design, uh, as you pointed out as well, is not up to the mark. Uh, But we we have deep engineering skills and now we've been building some deeper product skills for the last few years. So I feel like, We are uniquely positioned as an organization to to create uh, successful companies. We obviously supported a lot of startups, sometimes with investment, sometimes with um, actually building their products in the local ecosystem as well. And, uh, you know, that has also served us well. So not only will Arbisoft be building successful products of its own, it will also be facilitating with the same set of skills and capabilities that it possesses, it will also be facilitating other uh, players in this market. And we've already done that successfully in a few cases. So, the was one example. There are other companies we are building tech for Talimabad, which is a ed tech that I love. Um, you know, we've been building tech for pattern, which is a, yeah. Pattern is, you know, a recent uh, product launch that we helped enable by building the tech for them. And I love the founders. I think they're really amazing. So, yes, Arbisoft will continue to play its very important role uh, in multiple ways in this ecosystem.
0: Patron's founder, Vaji, is a great friend. He's my junior from Lums. And um, I love Haroon's mission from Talimabad too. This is one thing about being in this ecosystem. You're so connected, and it's kind of like you know everyone. Um, So that's great.
1: Yaya was on our uh, hackathon panel yesterday. So were the founders of uh, PostEx, which is, uh, you know, one of my personal investments. And Vaji was there, and I was telling him how... You know, the letter that he wrote to Dastagir has gone viral on LinkedIn. It's an amazing letter. I think I recommend everyone to read it uh, where he wrote a letter to Dastagir asking them, telling them why they yeah. should hire him. And it's gone viral. It's it's really amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Vaji, I, I know Vaji is the kind of personality, like, you know, who, people who kind of, you know, have, you, you know, who are bound to end up becoming an entrepreneur because they want to end up making that difference. So, uh Baji kind of aligns with that personality a lot so i know he's going to make it big um, i also want to get your perspective mm-hmm. on primarily because i don't how, because of how much i don't understand it um and like i'm talking about ai uh, and you know even within our own company mm-hmm. like you know we we are building tools and i and i every other day i see this kind of you know new open source project that is built either on top of mm-hmm. you know openai or you know davinci 003 or um, you know, it's built on top of chat GPT and I'm blown away, like just in, in a mere few months, you know, people have been able to build incredible products on, on, you know, these open source projects, like the ones open AI has put out. And, and I just kind of, I feel very giddy. I feel like, you know, the, the technological advancements that have gone about, um, you know, to make this possible. And these mm-hmm. days I'm reading this book called genius makers and a the, the Mavericks who brought AI to, um, you know, Facebook and um, Google and, and other companies. And to think about the process that has been 50, 60 years. And to think about how technology has been so commoditized that you and I you sitting in Pakistan can have access to that same product, um, you know, as people who have put in 50, 60 years of research work have access to it. Um, and Mm -hmm. how we can build companies from here that can utilize this. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, And also kind of tying it back to the Pakistani missions, how do you think that we can promote and adopt such technologies to help address some of our major
1: social and economic challenges? I think, uh, first of all, extremely bullish on it, right? I think I was not so bullish on the last couple of waves of, you know, fads that, you know, came, um, blockchain being one of them, metaverse, but, um, AGI, which is, you know, essentially open AI, AI has been around for 20, if not 40 years, but AGI where the big inflection point was actually also five years ago, right? The transformer paper that Google wrote and then BERT came out in 2018. So even open AI is standing on the shoulder of giants. And some of those giants are the Googles of the world. People don't really realize that, but, um, I think this is real, like, you know, the large language models and what they can do uh, in terms of, you know, self-training and in terms of uh, being able to reason. Uh, it's called in-context learning. So, you know, they didn't—they don't need human supervision for training. I think that's uh, definitely an inflection point. I still think that it's a little bit overhyped. And I see a lot of people saying, okay, you know, OpenAI is available. ChatGPT um, is available. Dolly is available, so let's just build a startup that uses these, right? I think that's the wrong way of going about building an AI startup. Uh, you still need to think start with you know what is a problem, right? That I'm going to solve. You can't start with the solution. That I know that OpenAI is a solution to so many things. So let me find a problem. You you have to find that problem first, and then you you have to be clever about how you can use OpenAI to solve that problem. And still, I think OpenAI um, is used. For useful if you, if you, if the thin layer that you'd build using open AI actually, um, you know, creates value for the user who's using, you know, that solution. And it's not just a gimmicky, you know, look, you know, we can do this. So, uh, this is my viewpoint on it. Like, I mean, you can't have like a surface level understanding of a new technology use that as a solution and overfit it on a problem. That's not the path to success. You still need to have a deep understanding of a problem first. So that's the right path to entrepreneurship. And then you can develop somewhat, you know, beneath the surface understanding of the new technology. So for example, in OpenAI's case, uh, more than using their API, you need to be able to understand for specific use cases, how can I train their model? How can I, you know, tune their model? Um, And then you can use it for solving that specific problem that you're setting out to solve. So I think just reversing this path is kind of dangerous because you're likely to end up uh, in failure. Um, Sam Ortman himself has uh, cautioned against it, right? He said that we made the interface look so good that it's almost deceptive how good it is. And it's actually not as good as you think it is. He, he, the founder of the company tweeted that. So, you know, you you have to basically um, take it with a pinch of salt, um, define your problem and understand your problem space really well before you start overfitting an AI solution to it. Uh, That's what my advice. Should you stay abreast of everything that's happening in AGI and large language models and, you know, what they're capable of doing? Absolutely. But just because you know that does not mean that you can just apply it to just any problem. I think that that is what my viewpoint here is.
0: No, and and I agree with you. I think the excitement kind of gets the better of you sometimes. And (laughs) that usually is followed. I I was listening to this podcast and it says that because finance people control the money and technology builders end up making big, you know, creating the technology, there's often a discrepancy um uh, you know in in their viewpoints on when an outcome is going to be achieved and people think that just because you can put money into it it's going to happen soon uh and again like i said i've been reading this book and i, I you know i've been tracing back the journey of ai from minsky and uh how that took decades right and you know like for example at terms like the idea of a neural net um or an llm sorry not not llm but the idea of a neural net was Um, you know, for decades thought of as a dead end in AI, because, you know, you, people said that if you want to pursue AI, it's more about symbolic AI. Don't go into neural nets because, you know, the self-learning mechanism that you feel that can give you answers to any problems, you know, it um, it, it was kind of said to be a dead end. Um, And now that I'm thinking about it, I kind of see uh, you know, what people are talking about and all of the VCs writing these newsletters about how this is the next big thing. And I feel like you're right, uh, as is with every technology, as we saw with internet and as we saw with, uh, you know, the dot-com bubble, it will go through a phase where there will be a realization on why, you know, t- the, the, it's important to think about a problem and the problem need that needs to be solved. There are certain things that, for example, the, 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 the utilization that I feel that can be used within the Pakistani context, right? Um, education is one example, payment processing is another example Then I feel like, mm-hmm. like you said, right, you know, our, one of our bigger problem is that we don't have good engineering teams. I feel like technology, like, you know, solutions like these kind of help us if not be a permanent solution, but kind of be a placeholder for that as someone who might be an aspiring founder, I feel like if you give, like, you know, if you tell them that this is what's possible, um, it, it might mm-hmm. still go a very long way what do you think about
1: that well, 100% i think there's no question about that right i mean uh, you'd understand the technology and then once you fully understand it or you know understand it to a requisite level then i think you get a different lens uh, for looking at problems and uh, you basically start thinking in terms of oh, how how would llm how would uh, you know openai like technology help me solve this um, um and uh, it's happening. It's already, in some cases, it is happening. It will continue to happen. But what I was trying to caution against was having a superficial understanding of the problem and having a superficial understanding of the technology, combining the two to create a solution is a hmm. almost certain path <laughs> to disaster and failure. So uh, yeah. you need to have deeper understanding of both. In terms of what you said about AI, look, there were infle- big inflection points, right? So, neural nets was a big inflection point. Obviously, that is forty years old, if not more. And then the deep learning was a big inflection point, which was, I think, towards in the first decade of the century. Uh, that you know, you you decided that if neural nets could have many different layers, then it could be a deep learning neural network, and it can you know give predictions much better. Previously, deep learning was not possible because, you know, compute was not available. So you just did not have the compute power to enable very deep, very complex neural nets. Um, And then 17 is, you know, when the LLM, the transfer uh, paper came out, that was, I think, a big inflection. And you're not alone. Many AI practitioners, I was listening to the Stanford professor's uh, lecture yesterday, professor of linguistics. He said he did not believe in kind of in-context learning up until 2017 and he thought that the only way to train neural nets was to you know have a lot of human provide trained data and then the neural net can train itself but you know this kind of in context uh, self-supervised learning idea uh, he just did not think that it could it could succeed and he said now i see that it has succeeded i still don't know why but i i know that it, it has succeeded so if a sanford professor is saying that then i think uh, all of us can you know, basically, uh, feel a little bit humility and how little we understand this. So I'll just ask you this one in question about
0: specific to AI that is of interest to me. I don't know about the audience, but what do you think about AGI? Carmack and Demis, Hassabis definitely seem to believe Musk as well, right? Uh, amongst others, you know, definitely seem to believe that, um, it's going to be here in, in the next 20, 30 years, um, Kurzweil, one of, uh, I, I was listening to his podcast with,
1: uh, um, yeah, the futurist. Treatment,
0: yeah. Lex, yeah. 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 The Lex treatment, uh, also said that, you know, in by 2030, AI will have, um, kind of cleared the Turing test and by 2050, you will have AGI. So oh. like, you know, <laughs>
1: I think I'm uh, bullish on that. I, yeah. I do, do think that it is, it is 10, 15 years away. I think, uh, we shouldn't be fooled just looking at Chat GPT thinking, oh, a- AGI and all its glory is here. I still see Chat GPT and LLMs as a uh, pretty deceptive, but also quite rudimentary in their capability for analysis. Um, you know, it's uh, and you can see those differences, right? So you can tell Chat GPT to create a wrap in the style of MM, for example. Um, and most people like you and me would say, "Wow, this is really amazing." But if you showed it to a really hardcore MM fan, they'd be able to tell you in a jiffy that yes, this looks like MM, but it's not MM because you know they really understand what MM is, right? So I think its analytical capability is still uh, quite limited. Um, I read this fantastic article that I recommend that people read about how Chat GPT is just a lossy compression of the internet. It's a really fantastic article, right? So yeah. the analogy really works, and the analogy is that if you take a very high resolution image and you create a JPEG out of it, ninety percent people will not be able to tell that some quality has been lost, and it's an irrecoverable quality loss, right? Um, you can't recover it back. You can't go back to the original image um, if you wanted to. So chatGBT is a bit like that. It takes all of the information uh, from the internet and it synthesizes an answer for you. But that answer is quite lossy. Uh, You can't go back to the original uh, source of data from that answer. And the article makes this really fascinating case that if it was not lossy, then you'd use that answer to train the model itself some more, right? I mean, why is ChatGPT limited to data until 2021? Why is it using its own answers to kind of retrain itself? Because... Those answers are a little bit lossy. They're only a summary of what it has seen. It has not deduced um, new logic or new creative ideas. It is essentially a summarization or a synthesis. So I think that's a really key point. Uh, There will be some inflection point where um, AGI starts creating new knowledge or starts creating things which are completely creative new ideas. Uh, you look at a dolly painting or, a or a stable diffusion image. And you say, wow, this is, you know, this looks really new. That's because you, you don't know the one, three, 10 billion images that it was trained on. Um, but if you could just go visit all of those images, you might be able to see the logic and how this, that new image was created. So I think, uh, I'm bullish. I think AGI will come, uh, it will come in our lifetimes for sure. Um, is it happening in the next two three years? I don't think so. Yeah. Or I don't it, think it's... Happen, it happened. It happened to a level where, uh, where you basically, it passes the Turing test, right? Uh, you know, the Turing test where you ask AI questions for a sufficiently long period of time, uh, and you can't tell it from a human. In Jar GPT's case, for example, give it two very large um uh numbers and ask it an adversarial question. And an adversarial question is a question where you're almost aiming for the AI to fail. And you you give it two very large numbers and you say, isn't the sum a million? And in many cases you'll see that chat GPT will say, yes, you're right, the sum is million because you know there are very obvious limitations of you know it getting some quite obvious things wrong
0: yeah and it's kind of um like for example there's a lot of talks about uh, i don't know if you've seen how recently like how some of the disasters results from the bing search that have you know sprung up on the internet and also from a more ethical perspective there will there's also been a lot of talk on twitter about how um you know AI, like the current chat gpt is very has been, has a political perspective. Um, you know, like, for example, in some cases, it's more left-leaning. In some cases, it's a, it's more, like, for example, like, the model that it has been trained on is, again, you know, not representative of, let's say, everyone. Um, and these are obvious loopholes. I think that,
1: yeah, that issue exists with all AI, not just uh, GPT, not just with AGI. It exists with you know, AI exists with supervised learning, for example, if there are inherent biases that humans have used in, uh, you know, the data set that's being used to train the AI or that the AI is using to train itself, uh, those biases will, in some cases, be amplified. And, um, you know, there's this very old problem that you people have built AI systems to kind of screen uh, resumes. So if you are biased against people of color or, you know, a different gender or minority segments of the society, then AI will also learn those biases and, you know, they'll just uh, trickle down. I think the good news is that there is a lot of research happening also on, you know, these ethical implications of AI. There are a lot of people in the world trying to prove uh, that, biased data can result in biased AI systems and, uh, you know, working against identifying those. Just like, you know, in in Chat GPT, I think we've all, you know, read about GPT zero also, where it can look at a passage and tell you whether that passage was created using Chat GPT or not. So when technology, I, I like saying this line, when technology poses a problem, Uh, It's technology that also comes up with a solution. So I have no doubt that, you know, we will come up uh, with a solution for that problem. But that problem does exist with all AI um, uh, everywhere right now.
0: My only concern with that is that at times because of that inherent bias, there might be like, you know, the promise of AGI becoming... You know, when you look at these pioneers of these technologies, like Sam Altman and Demis Sasabis, and, you know, like if you listen to their vision, like I was listening to Demis Sasabis and I was listening, like the vision is that all of our problems are caused by this inherent like problem that resources are limited. um, And those who control the resources end up controlling, you know, the means to create those resources and end up kind of creating this very big, uh, like, you know, division between for example, let's say what they are versus what everyone else is, right? You saw that happening with America and the industrial, sorry, not industrial revolution, but, you know, post-World War when they became the biggest industrial military complex and they ended up kind of, you know, being where they are, you know, currently. And you've seen that throughout history. It's not like a new thing. So one of the things that I'm kind of, you know, frankly concerned about is that this technology was brought on with the promise of that, you know, when AI does come, it'll find a problem for everything. It'll find a problem for us to, you know, it'll solve climate change, it'll solve cancer, it'll solve, um, you know, food scarcity, it'll solve water problems. Um, And, you know, it might just be that people who want to create a business out of this um, will just look at it. Okay, it might just help us do that faster and become more productive. And, you know, it it just gives us an opportunity to be able to then sell that code at at a high price point. And then gain, um, you know, some kind of return from that.
1: I think that uh, day is still far, and probably beyond, you know, at least my capability of understanding as well. Uh, when that happens, I do know that all of the best AI today and for the next few years, three, four, five years, um, contrary to you know all the hype around it, is still going to be used, at best, as a tool to empower humans to do more so you know i don't think that you know i know sam altman talks about you know how ai will agi will solve the cancer problem i don't think we are at a place where agi is better than the best oncologist in the world far from it right even despite the fact that it has read pretty much every cancer paper on cancer written in the history right? Uh, because it's all, it was all available. Even despite that, I think it's uh, reasoning capability is inferior to let's say the best oncologist it's reasoning capability in physics is inferior to, you know, the best or even better than average physicist. So we can cross that bridge where, you know, we start getting scared of AI when we come to that mm-hmm. bridge. Uh, I, I do think that, uh, you know, that's still kind of far away. And that's one of the problems that I see with AI in general, that any kind of AI that I've seen, um, so far, including all the latest ones, including the self-driving cars, it is just so easy to fool it, right? I mean, just basically making it say or do something, which is completely stupid, even for a. Ten-year-old child is just so easy, and that is bad and good, but because it gives me hope that you know AI will remain somewhat dumb for the next few years, even though it can do very smart things, it can also do really, really dumb things.
0: Yeah, I, I, to be very honest, I'm scared by it, but at the same time, I'm just so excited about like whatever. Like it just feels every week is a new week, and you know with uh, like for example like imagine who is isn't, you know man? the
1: best who isn't yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> like you you think about the breakthrough that we had with nuclear fusion no, just so in week. that
1: sense you're absolutely right if if you look at the charts in terms of you know uh, the number of parameters that are being fed into uh, training these bart type llms that chart is just phenomenal right i mean it was 100 million just to... Uh, a few years ago, and it's already at 175 billion for, I think, or GP3 or GP 3.5. There's it's going to yeah. be 400 trillion parameters or whatever, right? And some crazy number. So that, I think, trajectory is just mind-boggling. I think that is something to behold. So based on the trajectory that we've seen so far, you know, I think it's easy to say that in the next few years, AI is not going to become sentient or, you know, start taking decisions on its own. But that trajectory does look a little scary. You don't know, you know, what will happen if, you know, the number of parameters being fed. Right now, one of the problems with chat GPT is also that it's just getting textual data inputs. But I think GPT-4 has this promise of, you know, voice data, pictorial data will also start coming in. So, and, I got scared when the Stanford professor said, I don't really understand how Uh, it was able to answer this, but I I do understand that it did. I hope we will see less and less of that, right? Where (laughs) we are fully able to understand whatever it is doing. Uh, And uh, yeah, but it's fascinating. It's very, very exciting times.
0: Yeah. So I know we've already uh, kind of ate into a lot of our time. I just have this one last question before I let you go, um, and this is about being as an as a you know as an investor as an angel investor and at times also helping um, companies raise institutional rounds from you know uh, some of the bigger uh, some some of the bigger institutional investors. I want to understand what is it that you look for in a founder um, or in a product. Um, what advice would you give to aspiring founders about? when it comes to raising capital, um, and I want to keep the context very limited to Pakistan. So, you know, so there's the basic stuff about, okay, you know, you do have to do the fundamentals, right. You know, you have to kind of make a case, you have to create the unit, like, you know, you have to make a case for unit economics. You have to make a case for what problem your product is solving. But I also want to kind of, you know, pick your brain on what are certain things that, you know, are just like, you know, that are very individualistic are very idiosyncratic to you know Pakistani to a Pakistani uh, ecosystem that you'd like to see in founders
1: I think the this one is important everywhere right so it's not just important in Pakistan but especially so in Pakistan because of the reasons that you mentioned earlier which is that a lot of these founders have come from you know outside of Pakistan uh, and my number one metric for me you know taking the decision to invest in somebody is just getting a sense of their understanding of the problem so Uh, problem domain and the problem space, not necessarily their solution space. When founders talk very excitedly or animatedly about their solutions, that doesn't excite me. But when they talk to me about, you know, what is their understanding of the problem itself? And that understanding, I'm particularly looking for, can I develop that understanding by Googling, for example? If that is the case, then I'm less impressed. But Mm -hmm. that understanding needs to come from talking to those people who are actually facing the issue, uh, doing a lot of, like, customer interactions, maybe growing up in a space where that problem uh, existed uh, and experiencing it firsthand and talking to people who have experienced it firsthand. Uh, those are the kinds of things that I think personally inspire me. I mean, typically, when I invest, I, I want to know that uh, the your understanding of the problem space is better than um, an average Joe, of course, better than mine, better than somebody just Googling about it. Uh, And if all those check marks are checked, then I think you're already at a very, very good place because then you'd know when to stop as well. When people don't have an understanding of the problem space, they just carry on with it, with their solution for just way too long. And one of the key, I think, Attribute as an entrepreneur is knowing when to stop and knowing when to pivot and that can't happen unless you have like a really deep understanding of the problem that you're trying to solve. It's a little bit rhetorical. It's a little bit um, cliched, Um, but I think it's so important that it's the cliche needs to be repeated again and again. Don't come to me with your business idea unless you don't know anyone other than you who knows that problem better. Uh, And if you know somebody who knows that problem better, you better make sure that you've spoken to them before coming to me.
0: Yeah, that's so insightful. Um, And thank you so much. And do you think that, um, like, the doors, do you you think that the doors for funding will open again for Pakistan very soon? I know that this year has been or this quarter looks very dry. Um, I saw recently a couple of startups did raise, but, you know, it, it used to be more common in the, for quarters last year and the year, you know, pre- uh, preceding that. And we talked a bit about how there was a lot of interest in the in 2021 and 2022. Do you see that not maybe returning in the same kind of, you know, with the same magnitude, but do you see capital returning to Pakistan sometime soon with institutional investors like the likes of Planet Perkins and, then, you know, maybe Sequoia or whatnot?
1: hundred percent. Like there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that that's going to happen. In fact, it's kind of started. Like you've seen Techlogics just raised $7.5 million for their product. I think it's uh, something fi. it's in the fintech space uh, and they do have some brand name uh, investors in there. So it's only it's only a matter of time uh, and it's already started happening. Uh, Pakistan just cannot be ignored uh, as a result of its you know, by virtue of its sheer size and um, there's zero doubt. It's a matter of when, not if.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Yasser. I cannot ex- kind of, you know, um, articulate how big of like, you know, how much of a pleasure it was to have you and how, how much fun it was to just, you know, speak about all of these important topics and kind of get your insights on them. Uh, because I certainly know that more of these conversations need to happen more of pe- like, you know, more awareness needs to spread. Uh, and I'm very grateful that you took out the time and spoke with us.
1: Thank you for, it was really nice talking to you and, uh... I hope we'll uh, will continue talking about these things with many different people.
0: Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Um, thank you, thank everyone, you for listening in. Please, please do give us your feedback, and uh, see you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you.